We are so, so privileged today to have the Reverend Joshua Manning with us. If this is your first time to meet Joshua, I'm excited for you. Um, He is a pastor at Grace Chapel, which is our sister church. Is that how we would describe Grace Chapel? Is that fair? Sure. Okay. Okay. So we are going to start with our scripture today, and then my plan is to pepper Joshua with questions. So um, our scripture today comes from Zephaniah, not a scripture or not a book that you're probably used to hearing sermons out of, so that's why it's so exciting. We're in Zephaniah 1, 7, 12 through 18a. Hear now the word of the Lord. Be silent before the Lord God. For the, the day of the Lord is at hand. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. At the time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the people who rest complacent, complacently on their dregs, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do harm. Their wealth shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The warrior cries aloud there. That day will be a day of wrath, the day of distress and anguish, the day of ruin and devastation, the day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thickness and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring such distress upon people that they shall walk like the blind. Because they have sinned against the Lord, their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. So obviously this is a pretty heavy uh, scripture that we're reading today, Joshua. So can we start out by having you explain to us who Zephaniah is and who he is talking to here. Great. Uh, Carol, thanks again for that great introduction. And, uh, you know, you guys are welcome for your introduction to Zephaniah if you haven't read it before. Uh, So Zephaniah is who we refer to as a minor prophet. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but there are major prophets and minor prophets. And there are 12 minor prophets, and Zephaniah is one of the minor prophets. Uh, But although he is a minor prophet, he is sent with a major word, as we can tell, with all of the things that he... uh, speaks of in this text. Zephaniah is a contemporary, if you will, or, or lived during the same time as King Josiah. And uh, it's kind of interesting because King Josiah is known as the one, uh, his name means uh, that God is healing or Jehovah heals. Um, essentially that God would bring restoration to Israel. Uh, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but if, if you have spent any time in any of the Bible studies here at Grace Avenue, you're probably well aware, any Bible study anywhere, that uh, Israel has a hard time getting it together. The entire Old Testament is filled with them uh, loving God and then not loving God. But a lot of it is them struggling to love God and love one another. As they struggle to love God and love one another, God regularly calls them uh, to accountability for their failure to love one another and treat one another well, um, or to treat their, treat their enemies uh, well as well. So anyway, Zephaniah is the prophet who sent with his word. He comes during his time of King Josiah, but uh, this is before King Josiah goes ahead and, and has his time of reform, where he tries to reorder the life of Israel so that Israel will indeed put God first. And uh, Ze- did you ask me who he's talking to yet? 
Yes, yeah. Okay. So, Tell us who's talking. Yeah, great. So I don't know if you guys uh, noticed this or not, but in the text, uh, Zephaniah has these words of judgment, but these words of judgment are not for everybody. And if you look at the first couple of verses, uh, in verse 7, it says, the second half of verse 7 says, the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guest. In other words, God has set apart people who are invited, right, his guests. Uh, and then when we read further uh, in verse 12, Scripture reads, at that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the people who settle like dregs and wine. Um, God begins to describe those people who are not invited. So uh, the audience here, the words that we're reading are for the people who have not been considered guests to whatever function God is preparing. Okay, that's a great, great answer and very helpful. So when we're talking about, first I want to say, who are these people that are not the guests? Okay, yeah. So the people who are not the guests, I, I would say, are the people who are being described here. And um, I was going to get into this more during the second service, but I think we can do it now. Um, it's Labor Day weekend. And for many of us, it feels like, an, you know, an, an extended weekend, right? And a Monday off where we don't have to rush back to the busyness of doing things. And while that is true, the history of Labor Day is one that is colored by... Um, wealth disparity, to say the least. So um, Labor Day was signed into law in the late 19th century. It was signed into law in the late 19th century uh, largely because, I don't know if y'all know this or not, but for a long time, those who were laborers or considered laborers had to fight for, to get a day off. And um, so the, the thought behind Labor Day um, is essentially to make sure that those who were laboring in factories and the like were actually able to take time off from work mm-hmm. without losing their job mm-hmm. or being considered lazy, right, or opportunistic. And so um, for me, the people that we're talking about in this text are those who would have benefited from the unfair labor practices. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Great. that's super helpful. And so when we're reading this and we're hearing about this very wrathful language. Mm -hmm. I think that it probably, in me when I read it, and probably all of you when I read it to you, it brings up some feelings. And we're left with this question about God. And what do we think this says about the character of God? So I think it says a couple of things, right? Uh, Let's start here. I think first and foremost, it says that God cares. Mm. Right? We're not going to add any value to that yet. We're not going to say good or bad, that God cares. Mm-hmm. Um, God cares enough to get upset. Because this is not language that comes from somebody who is cool, calm, and collected. This is language that comes from somebody who is upset and has something they want to do or something they want to say. But ultimately, this has been going along for quite some time. Whatever has been going on in Israel has been going on for a while. This is not God getting upset because they randomly, they randomly did something wrong. This is not, this is not one thing. Mm-hmm. This is generations and gen- generations of God inviting them to repent. That is to turn away from the behavior that they were carrying out um, and them not doing so. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not simply, oh, God got upset in a moment and God just decided, you know, judgment's coming. But God, can, God is a God of grace, right, which we all agree upon, right, that God is gracious. And so um, we could see in the text that we read through the Old Testament that God regularly invites the people to accountability and to correct their behavior. And this is sort of like the result of generations of not doing so. 
Yeah, I think that that's super helpful. And what you're saying is it's not like this reflects a God that's hot-tempered, right. um, quick to anger. Right. Um, so I, I think that that's helpful to think about. And so what do you think for us that we're meant to learn from this passage? Yes. Yeah. So I think we're, we're meant to learn a couple of things. I think first and foremost, we need to learn that, when I say we learn that God cares, that God, even though we didn't add any value to that, to that statement before, I think it's important to recognize that God cares about how we treat one another, right? We've all heard this more than once. God cares about how we treat one another. Um, but this text talks about really about how there's a group of people who won't get to enjoy their wealth, which I think also points to the fact that God cares not, to the fact, not about the fact that we have money or don't have money, the fact that we have assets or don't have assets, whether we've acquired wealth or not acquired it. I don't think God cares as much about the fact that people are rich and they shouldn't be rich. Does this make sense? Mm-hmm. Or people are well off or shouldn't be well off. I think it's about how that wealth was acquired. Does it make sense? Yes. It is, the, it is about the acquisition of the wealth. So I think God cares about the mistreatment of others, right? It, it is sort of like the, uh, we've heard that cliche that God helps those who help themselves. And the reality is, I think that's a yes and. God helps those who help themselves and are also willing to help others in the process. Mm. And not acting as if those who don't seem like they're helping themselves are responsible all the time for their own uh, outcomes. Particularly if, uh, like again, it's Labor Day, particularly if those people are going to work it's not that they weren't working, that they're going to work, um, that they're laboring uh, tirelessly. But, you know, there are those of us who get to determine what those wages look like, what they're paid for that work. Mm -hmm. And those of us who get to determine what they're paid for that work based on the fact that we want to make certain profit margins. Um, And that that has very little to do with them and them not going to work and everything to do with the fact that we are trying to maintain certain levels of profit or whatever the case may be. Um, and that's just, that's just a generalization, right? So it's not, so please don't hear me saying anything super specific about that. Just the reality of that God cares about not just outcomes, but God cares about intentionality and the path that we take to get to certain outcomes. Mm-hmm. I, I think that that's really interesting when we think about how a company treats its employees mm-hmm. and how important that is. And how there is something about an employer that is willing to forfeit a little bit of that profit margin to do what is right by people. Right. And yeah. Well, and, and the last thing I want to share about that was the one thing I think is also important to learn is that um, some of us may often feel like, well, God hasn't intervened God's self for whatever reason. Maybe something's happening in the world, right? We've had like, what, this is like two years after uh, COVID initially hit, right? And for years, we've probably been sitting there saying, well, God hasn't done anything about it. Or we look at situations in our lives, well, God hasn't done anything. I think there's also an opportunity to look at an instance in which God says, all right, I let you try to figure it out. But since you haven't figured it out yet, let me help you. Hmm. Right? I've invited you to change. I've invited you to come up with solutions and you haven't done so. So instead of waiting for you to do something, it's time for me to do something. So I think, I mean, we also need to recognize, I think from this text, that at some point in time, um, we may consider God inactive, but I think there are points in time in which God's just like, most of us just like, I'm going to help, I'm going I'm to do it myself. If I can't depend on you to help me, I'm just going to go ahead and do it myself. Hmm. Right? So I think this is one of those, one of those instances in which we, we need to recognize that God is not unwilling to intervene God's self or interject, rather, God's self. I think that's interesting. And, you know, earlier this week when we were talking about this passage, we did talk about God and how God views the poor. Um, We specifically talked about Luke 4 when Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to claim the year of the Lord's favor. 
And so kind of in connection to what you just said, what do you think this passage is telling us about how God sees the poor and how God sees the oppressed? Right. So there, is, um, there are a couple of theologians who would say if you read Scripture long enough, you will see that God actually does uh, not necessarily choose sides, but that God has a preference um, and, and a preferential option, op, yeah, preferential option for the poor, mm-hmm. right? Those who cannot help themselves for whatever reason, uh, but oftentimes their inability to help themselves or their ability to help themselves rather is uh, limited by something else, by either the actions of others, the policies implemented by others, or the case may be. And I think that's the other part too that text points out to us is that anything that exists in the world doesn't exist outside of human action. Does this make sense? Yep. Right, so any, anything that policies, uh, standards of wealth, right? Um, all, a lot of this has to do with what humans decided to do. And so, and so I think for us, um, reading the text, we can see, okay, God is hyper aware that many times people, um, individuals who are suffering are not responsible for their own suffering, but their suffering is a result or an effect of someone else's choices. Mm-hmm. And so... As we wrap up, um, I just want to talk about the takeaways. I think you've given us some wonderful things to think about, thinking about how, how we build our wealth, um, how God sees the oppressed, how God intervenes in the world, how God's uh, chances that are given to invite us into doing the right thing are offered time and time again. Um, but I just want to ask if there is a primary takeaway yeah that we could leave this room or leave this podcast with, what would you want us to most hear? Right, so I, I want us to focus less on the, um, the graphic nature of God's response, right? Or really just, that, that's really a threat because it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> this is just a prophet talking. Um, but less on the graphic nature and more on the fact that I think and believe that um, God is gracious and God is gracious enough to invite us to respond to that grace, mm. right? God is not simply saying, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you, and not expecting anything from us. And, that, and don't hear me say that you have to earn forgiveness, right? But if God is extending forgiveness, God expects something different afterwards. It's the same way you and I, if we forgive somebody, we don't expect them to continue to do the thing that caused us harm in the first place, mm. right? If I forgive you, I don't expect you to go and five minutes later do the same thing that I just said, that you just said you're sorry for. And so I think God is, uh, God is similar in that regard. When God extends forgiveness or God extends grace, God expects a response. And so I think for us, this is an invitation to consider what our response might be. That's really beautiful. Thank you. Um, thank you so much, Joshua, for being here with us today.